podcast, and today we have a great guest, Mr. Ken Rubin from the Ruby School Online Cooking School. How are you today? I'm doing well, thank you. No, thank you for taking your time out of your busy schedule to uh, talk to us about what you're doing over there in Ruby and your own story. And with that, I'd like to get started. Just kind of tell me a little bit about your history with food and how you got involved with a plant-based diet. A really deep fascination with food and cooking. My family, I would say, kind of were food people in their own ways. My grandparents um, owned and operated a farm. They, you know, operated since the 1940s. And I, I grew up being close to food, knowing that food came from a place, that it didn't come from a package, and being around people cooking and enjoying and sharing food. And my mom was a great cook and always had a huge garden growing up. So the idea of food for me at a very young age was something that I felt very um, connected to in, in a deep way. And that might have not been as typical in kind of like suburban, you know, sort of like New Jersey, New York area. <laughs> uh, but I felt like I had this very close to the earth experience, even though I was in the shadow of a huge city and um, had these access points to these these kind of experiences in food that were so important to shaping like who I was. So I knew at a very young age that food was going to be my thing. Like I started cooking very early in life. Um, I started holding a knife, <laughs> being critical of food, um, and wanting to take charge and have a primary role in food production, like really, really young. I was cooking dinner for the family, like proper meals by the time I was like nine or 10. Like dependable meals because my parents both worked and it was like, oh, well, you know, Kenny's going to cook. And it wasn't complex or elaborate, but I was shopping deliberately and I was um, reading cookbooks <laughs> and planning and the whole idea of like mise en place. And I was in a mindset where production was a thing that I was comfortable with. So, so how did parents reproduce you? Because I'm. <laughs> That would be great if I'd have had one of you as my own children. <laughs> yeah, and I was already at that point, I was already kind of inspired by plant-based. So okay. um, at a really young age, my older brother and I became interested in the idea of being um, like vegetarian. And because we had access to fresh garden vegetables and because I knew how good that tastes, there was nothing even that unusual or off-putting for me at a young age, at you know the age of eight, to be like, oh, wow, that's a, like a legitimate way to eat. That's an easy way to eat. It's a way that people eat all around the world because I'm reading cookbooks from places, and it was like, oh, that's vegetarian, you know, recipe. <laughs> that's, that's food somewhere, you know. How old was your brother when you decided to go vegetarian? Um, he, so he's four years older, and he's actually a physician now. And um, he he was 12, and I was eight roughly. So we just kind of decided to do it together. <laughs> and how did that idea even come across a 12-year-old boy's mind? That's curious. Well, yeah, so that's maybe an exploration of him, but he's he's um, always been very interested, I think, in health and food, maybe in his own ways. And we just started conversations around it, and we kind of did it together. Um, it became easy because I was cooking, and he had this idea. And, you know, for both of us, it became part of our path in many ways for many, many years. So. Wow, that is, 
That's yeah. really cool, actually. So unusual. I mean, as a default, the family wasn't like a vegetarian family, but as a family, we had an awareness around this that was, again, probably different from other families. Definitely. So yeah. did you know anybody else besides you and your brother that were eating this way? Yeah. Oh, sure. I mean, we had, I remember having friends and people who maybe weren't eating that way in like a hundred percent way. They weren't defining themselves in any particular way, but they were embracing it. For them, it was like, great. That's the food. Amazing. It wasn't anything that was like an oddity. So um, for me, maybe that was important growing up was that there wasn't like a, like an othering of it. There wasn't a clear distinction or a set of distinctions that were so separate that made it so um, polarized or sort of one way or the other. Like it was very much, these are all foods. They're all delicious. This is the way, in fact, so many people around the world, if you were to experience this and travel so much of the way they eat, Mm -hmm. they don't think it's unusual or vegetarian. It's just food. The fact that it's vegetarian is a is a thing. It's the thing that you can sort of point to, but it's not the primary characteristic about the food. So what is it as a child that really resonated with you besides the food's tasting well? And, I mean, how could you maybe give some advice to a parent who's trying to encourage their children to embrace something like this or different types of foods? Um, yeah, I think just being supportive of whatever choices they want to make and understanding that, people go through a lot of different decision-making processes and everyone's going to have their own kind of pathway to it. Um, and that as a parent or as a part of a family or community, all you can really do is provide information and be supportive. And um, for my parents, it was just about them empowering me to like find my little avenue into it. And for me, it was cooking. I really enjoyed the cooking part of it. I became less concerned about some of the things that I'm, you know, more concerned with now uh, with regard to health or the environment and so on than I was back then. For me, it was like, wow, this is a really fun, easy way to cook that just was so reflective of other things, different flavors, different ideas, different preparation methods. Um, Maybe it was even a window kind of in hindsight, maybe even a window for me into my interest in, in culture because I always saw early on in my life that if I could cook foods from other places, places I'd never even been to, places I would just point to like on a globe, it was almost like, oh, wow, I could I could go there without being there as a child. That's actually a really great idea to bring, you know, parents to say, well, look at this area here. This is what they eat, the flavors. That would be a great way to introduce the two types of foods. Yeah, sure. And my and like I know for my kids that their palates are greatly expanded because say they have hummus and it's sort of spiced a certain way, they know they can take that same concept of a hummus and spice it a different way or flavor it a different way. That maybe they like more, maybe they like less, but they know they can do it differently. They're not bound by just one right. thing. So it becomes more conceptual as well. So Yeah, and we did a similar thing. I went to Uganda earlier this spring, and we did that. We searched out Ugandan flavors and had them before we left, so we were prepared. So that's a great – I am make note of that. I will have to. (laughs) (laughs) All right. That's awesome. So you were a kiddo, and you're cooking meals for your family. I'm so jealous. And then then what happened? So what led you to Yeah, so, so, you know, just later in life, I was always interested in cooking, and it was catering all through high school and doing kind of the work of – 
understanding production and um, working in kitchens and just fascinated at multiple levels. And um, I thought I was really interested in health as a as a high school kid, you know, biology and this sort of thing, like nutrition really kind of interested me. So I went to college thinking I was going to be pre-med. Again, my my parents are health professionals. I was kind of around <laughs> medicine growing up. So it kind of made sense, and food was an avenue into that space. Um, and what happened was when I went to college, I met an anthropologist, a professor of anthropology who was – doing all contemporary social cultural anthropology and, you know, working with interviewing and um, like ethnographic, uh, oops, excuse me, ethnographic uh, field work um, and talking to people about food. And I was within just, you know, very early on in college, I just knew within like a month of college, I knew that I was more interested, more interested from the kind of cultural perspective of food versus just the kind of biological, like medical perspective. I really was so interested in the whole like question around like you are what you eat or what it is that define a food culture if you were to say a place has a food culture. And it was just this term that was like so thrown around and talked about, but never studied in depth <laughs> and I was just part of this burgeoning field back in the mid nineties when it wasn't really even a field yet. Now people talk about food studies or food anthropology in a different way, but even 20 years ago, it like wasn't even a thing yet. So if you had to give a, a definition of food anthropology, what would that be? So I, I'm, a, I'm trained as a social anthropologist, sort of a cultural anthropologist, which touches things like folklore and storytelling and ethnography and some other kind of um, modes of inquiry. But a, a food anthropologist is just looking at those connections between food and culture. So if you can sort of begin to characterize or identify cultural traits around food and cooking and all the things that it touches, that's what we would study. So it's a multimodal type of endeavor. It's not just one way of learning or doing or <laughs> producing the work. Um, and my work really focused on sort of the intersection of public health and cooking. And really early on, I was actually developing research methods to understand how, um, how cooking as a cultural activity is transmitted cross-culturally. So how one learns to cook as a culturally competent act, the same way you would learn to move your body and use your senses in a series of ways to do other activities like dancing or other expressive things. So what would be your, I guess, your looking at the, the American food culture, what would, you, <laughs> what would you say has changed? I'm, I'm assuming you've looked that over, um, you know, from the 40s or 50s or whatever moving forward. What's been the big moving target that we seem to be missing when we're, you know, we're not teaching our kids to cook anymore and all that type of stuff. What's, what do you think? Yeah. I mean, so sort of like the meta analysis of the anthropologists of sort of the American food culture over time is really one of like in the last 50 years, looking towards like hyper industrialization, really sort of like the mechanization of cooking and eating and things became um, so sort of like homogenous and the diversity of 
production standards and things that you would eat and everything really changed sort of around like world war two. And, you know, now you have an increasing swing towards all those things that we talk about. It's the farm to table, the CSA. So in there you have these gradients and obviously starting in the sixties and seventies, different movements around the environment or about water or about animals and about ways of eating or ways of even, kind of um, looking at the role of a chef and all these other pieces that kind of flow into um, the American kind of perception around food. Right now, so many people, I would say, um, almost define themselves by their food, their food character, right? <laughs> um, it's what they talk about when they go out to dinner, what they're eating or what they like or they don't like or what they tried. It's such a part of our conversation in a way it wasn't 10 or 15 you know years ago uh, part of our consciousness we actually value it more and i think it actually confuses people because we at once and this is kind of where the culture is now the way i read it um it's very much a culture of contradiction a culture of almost um where we're, we're schizophrenic where we could actually rationally weigh the options on one hand and sort of identify all the things about why you'd want to eat certain things um, the sustainability piece, the eating less or no meat piece, the health piece, all these different very rational um, things that are part of discourse, part of what we accept as consensus. And yet the, there's the other side of the real existence, the world around us, the world that we live in, this space that we occupy, which is very much not based on the rational, right? It's very much based on impulse and convenience and what's environmentally there and what's really cheap and what you get, you know, someone nods their head up and down when you eat it or whatever it is that happens versus um, those other modes of thinking, right? So I'm curious, what, where do you think the American culture is headed right now? Because we do have so many diverging patterns and things going on. Yeah, I, well, I mean, this is why I love the plant-based movement and why I've been such a proponent of it um, and teaching people about it is because I think where it's winning is in getting a lot more people on board to normalize it and to think about it as something that's um, doable and achievable and for all ages and for all reasons and at all levels <laughs> and making it something where it's no longer a, 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 like a spectacle or something that you feel um, has to be identified in, in some very narrow terms. I think the movement is something that has really taken hold because of just the clear and overwhelming sort of intersections of where things touch. So anyone who cares about the environment can't not have this as part of their consciousness at this point. <laughs> right? Um, so, so there's so many sort of like intersections where you just, where it begins to permeate. And over time, the trend is now increasingly normal. Young people think it's absolutely normal. <laughs> <laughs> um, preferred, um, mainstream, uh, you have the medical community in that group completely, I think, increasingly on board. <laughs> um, uh, well, compared to 10 years, I mean, it's, it's more and more, I know there's, there's probably a lot, a lot of tension still for sure, but I see so much space for growth and opportunity in, in those spaces. So I think living in middle America, the last you know, seven years, that's different than maybe physicians in larger urban areas, but right. it is, I was in rural Colorado, it was still a struggle, even though we had 
wonderful results sure. from their patients. But so I'm curious, yeah. what um, so is, what would you say would be the one maybe single problem that we still need to overcome that would make it just like a you know hitting that tipping point where America would just really embrace this many of us at once and really just push it forward? What do you think that is? <sighs> Um, I mean, I think there's a few things, and I think if I were to talk to my friends in different sectors in the food space, they would all argue very strongly for what, whatever their thing was, whether it was more of a big move towards food policy that really encouraged, you know, a huge jump in the amount of fruits and vegetables and things like that that become available to people, uh, low-income people, or places like food deserts, and just making that part of the um, the solving of the problem is just access, is just getting those things that we want people to eat more of in their hands. Um, coupled with that, you always think about the education piece. That's where Ruby tries to come in and really be supportive on, on various levels. But I always think about the food system as really um, encompassing so many different uh, touch points. I mean, I think about, from my experience, the increasing role of the healthcare professional uh, of being that sounding board and being that person in the community, not just in the medical community, but the larger community who can talk about it in terms of equity and justice and access and making it a priority. Um, despite any other, you know, sort of like differences that could exist in those spaces, because it's just so um, overwhelming and clear and inexpensive from a prevention point of view for these communities. And I don't care what you believe, but the cost of health care will make this country very, very sick. <laughs> um, um, so, so we have to find ways collectively to just kind of get on board and 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 do it. Um, and it's a lot of things. It's the policy side. It's the community side. Um, there's definitely a lot of different touch points. So, for a healthcare professional, for example, let's say they're just now entering this, where what would the that role in that community, that larger community, be? Would you say what would be a, a role that they could seek out? Just as a um, person, or teaching, or. <laughs> Yeah, I mean, I, I love I love the teaching piece. It's not necessarily something that's always possible or scalable in every community because there's cost and time associated with it. Um, but I think for physicians and for healthcare professionals to be strong advocates and for the you know organizations that they work within to really support the communities around them, I think is just critical. People can't do it on their own. They need to have other people kind of on board to be support network. Um, one of the models that I've seen work really well is just, you know, we happen to have here in the Portland area a number of people through Kaiser who are really supportive of what we're doing. And um, Chad Sarno and I had an opportunity a few weeks ago to do a big uh, cancer conference with them. And it was just a great collaboration to see over 200 people from the community attend, um, probably two dozen physicians plus another two dozen or so nurses and um, stakeholders who were, you know, just regular people in the community who cared about cancer in their town to teachers and other people. Uh, and then people who are undergoing, you know, active treatment and then cancer survivors. We had these wow. kind of constituents. 
And I felt like having those three groups together and doing very deliberate programming targeted at them really made the connections clearer. <laughs> okay. And we were there to talk about the food piece, and we were there to kind of help connect the dots about the food and the cooking. But for me, it was like this great example of the physician talking about plant-based diets in the context of cancer, but making it a community event at, at the heart it was just great. So. Wow, that sounds amazing. Yeah, yeah. Chad and I were really so happy to be there. <laughs> yeah, I went to the University of Portland. That's where I got. Oh, graduated. wonderful! Yeah, back in early nineties. <laughs> yeah, it's a it's a it's a wonderful place. I loved Portland. Oh man, great city. Yeah, it is a great city. All right, so that is just fascinating. I got to look more into this. Have you have you ever considered writing a book about this or anything like that, or have you, or do you have research papers? I know you. I mean, that's uh, fascinating to me. Yeah, I mean, a lot of my research was in the early days, so it's been a while. Um, I have some other things in the works in terms of other writing projects and things. Um, but it's a unique, it's kind of a unique space that I work in because it's very much um, in this ethnographic space, which doesn't always make sense to people or people always don't kind of catch on to what that is. They have to get into it and realize um the applications of it from a storytelling or from a policy or from a research context, kind of how we use this information. So, yeah. And I think just from my own journey to the plant-based sphere, once you're there, you become aware of the environmental aspects, you know, the food discrepancies, the food deserts and challenges that your patients have. And I mean, there's just so much, um, it is amazing. And it, we have we can learn so much from someone like you who can see all those sectors and the intersecting and how we can move forward and you know break down any obstacles. I think that's that's really cool. Yeah, for me it really helps with kind of helping others create priorities of opportunity and collaboration, and to realize when we map things out from a cultural perspective, when we look at kind of the ideals and things that we share and how we get there, it's not about um, for me, it's not always about identifying all those individual dots on the map, those things that we're all trying to get to. It's trying to identify those areas in which those lines that how you get there cross and where you can touch and where you can be supportive. Because sometimes all those little spaces, all those little individual things can be like uh, overwhelming and you just have to follow it. You just have to kind of follow it there. <laughs> and, that's, and that's the only way to... Um, to really experience the process of culture change, of culture happening. Right. Um, is, it is a participatory and self-determinate thing um, that you have to reproduce. It doesn't happen to you. you. You can have it happen to you, but you can also create it yourself. Right. So this is part of the, the thing around, you know, what I'm trying to always press the message on is helping people change the story and change the narrative around their ability to share this message and to be more plant-based and to feel um, confident and joy when they do it and find ways to share it in a very authentic way that really serves the needs that they have, that their community has. Um, it's one of the reasons why with Ruby we love teaching about it so much because the people who come to us to get the information are so um, appreciative of it <laughs> and they share it and they're just great um, uh, at teaching themselves. They'll go out and they'll start their own study groups and their own kind of um, their own purpose. So it's really nice. 
what have you found the most, um, are the most, I guess, but the best way to share the plant-based message? Have you found a certain way people approach it or share that with somebody new that works better than others? Or do you think it's just determinant on the, the listeners and who's speaking? Uh, you know, I think it's so determinant on the context of where the message is happening and why the message is happening and like, um, how it's being delivered with Ruby. We really kind of meet people where they are and then take them on the spectrum closer to a place where they're going to feel that they can do, do more or do it better or feel more confident doing it to sort of make it a a better part of their lives, a more fulfilling part of their lives. And that's going to mean different things to different people. And we just want to be supportive of everyone on their way there. <laughs> and for us, it's not about getting them to any particular place faster. It's just about getting them to a point, again, when they're feeling so good about it and so normal that it is just a part of their life. It's not that they're cooking vegetarian or plant-based or vegan food. They're just cooking dinner right. <laughs> and it's awesome. And like, there's a bit of a shift in the mindset that happens, I think around it where, um, when they can find that those things become really comfortable and really useful and have, um, just a lot of awareness around it and a lot of sort of good energy around it, that that's going to be something they're going to continue and do. It's not a matter of like, can I do this or how well do I do it? It's like, it's like being in it, and then you're then you're on your way. <laughs> I think you're exactly right because whenever I would approach patients about this, and they're just like, well, how can I do that? I've been cooking this way for fifty, six years, whatever. But it's funny because that always comes to mind as like, okay, five years ago I was doing the same thing, but now it's like second nature. It's like I've always cooked this way. Always, do that. and that's actually that reassurance actually makes them feel better about moving forward. So right, and they only have to do one or two or three things well for right now, and then they'll get better at those, and then they'll have five things that do they do well, and then it's um, because if they're not doing it and getting confidence, and if their experience with it is one where they say, you know, plant-based thing didn't work for me, and here's why. It's going to be really hard to get them to try again a second or third or fourth time. So I just think about it as like setting them up to be successful so that the story that they're telling about their plant-based experience is one where they're like, you know what? There's all these things I like to cook. They're pretty easy. Um, it takes me 30 minutes. It's all the things my doctor says. Uh, my husband eats them, right? Those are the things you want to have them say, not, oh, yeah, you know, it wasn't for me. Like, and it's like, well, we need to get in there and figure out, don't let them get to that point, basically. And that's a that's a very good point, too, because getting trans, you know, having patients transfer their diet like that, when I first started, I didn't have all the information that I needed to help them be successful. I didn't have the Ruby School. I didn't have handouts, nothing. I mean, I was just discovering. And then... I was learning from patients. Well, I'm always hungry. Well, they either one, they just did fruits and vegetables. They left out the starches and all those important things. And so I've learned so much in those five years and, you know, made my own handouts I could hand to patients. And so, right. but it is, it's, it's listening to your audience and saying, what is the problem? What can I do to, to figure it out? Yeah. And every, every population is going to be different. There's no one size fits all. 
you know, when we were doing this event with the group in Kaiser, a lot of the individuals were from Longview, and the population in Longview, Washington, is much different than an urban Portland population, um, and had much different ideas about food and how they shared food and the things that they had in their refrigerator were different and their shopping access was different, and. It was, it's the reason why when I do demos and things, I'm always like, you buy this at the supermarket and you can get it organic if you can. Otherwise, it's just fresh food off the shelf and you start there. Just as little intimidation as possible. <laughs> it's not about teaching them everything you need to teach them in the very first session. It's about having them walk away from those first handful of experiences going, you know what? This is like totally reasonable. I can do this. Next week, I'm going to do this other thing, and then the week after, I'm going to try this other thing. And that's how you get them convinced that this is something that can be a part of their lifestyle. And to me, that's the most important thing. Um, it, it has to become normal for them and something that they feel comfortable and not timid about. And continue the conversation because sometimes they don't bring up the problems and they veer off or they start sliding down, you know, the the wrong slide, <laughs> like, come back, mm -hmm. back. But yeah, that's a very true, like, making it part of their story, for sure. Yeah, yeah. So how did you get involved with Ruby? Tell us more about that. Uh, so I I was, um, I would kind of followed Ruby. They're a, you know, 11-year-old company, and I've been involved with them for, I guess, over four years now. But I was watching them when they first came on the scene early, and they were just known for having exquisite instructional content and video content. Um, at the time, I was working with a web property called Chefs.com, and um, that was originally how I kind of got to know them. And then I just I ran into Joe Girard, one of the co-founders, actually at a conference um, when I was working for uh, a vegan, the professional vegan chef school, and he just we just kind of bumped into each other. We kind of got talking about our projects and. We got connected through that, and you know, the idea of bringing me into Ruby was to help, you know, kind of bring this um, notion of having an online plant-based school uh, to the masses. <laughs> you know, having this information out there. Um, so we started down the path of taking a lot of the content and making it plant-based because Ruby was not a plant-based company by any stretch beforehand. Joe and Don, the founders found plant-based, you know, late, later in their, uh, their Ruby development. So we started developing plant-based content, and then um, we were able to get Chad Sarno on our team, and that really expanded our offerings within the plant-based space. And um, he and I developed a plant-based professional certification uh, together and launched that about two and a half or three years ago. Um, and then a number of other courses in the plant-based space, the Forks Over Knives uh, online course and some other courses um, like Culinary Rx, but it was sort of the impetus for for Ruby to get into this health and wellness space and to have the lens of plant-based cooking and lifestyle medicine be one of the ways that we could, you know, live the mission that we wanted to live of making people um, more comfortable, more confident cooks, and having it you know, translate to a better world. Um, that's kind of our, our goal for people, so. So it's strictly a plant-based online cooking platform? 
Well, so Ruby has both types of products. Not all the products are plant-based. Um, as a company, for instance, we do all the online training for Marriott hotels. So we have training programs that are uh, more like a conventional cooking school based on content that was shot years and years ago. Um, all the new content that we're shooting is all plant-based content, and then we're in infusing all that old content with plant-based. <laughs> so now the Marriott Cooks, which is interesting, we're running now, we've got over 5,000 Marriott Cooks using our online program, and they all have a plant-based learning unit. <laughs> That's fabulous. <laughs> which is great. Um, plant-based and special diet. So it's about gluten-free, um, different types of allergies, and then plant-based cooking. So, um, and there's more to come with Marriott, with plant-based as well. That's one of our, our new projects is to do more work at the advanced level with plant-based cooking. So now do these chefs actually build out their menu or is that a corporate thing? Because that's really interesting because I've been to many Marriott's because I have a Marriott card and, you know, free room, you got to can't miss mm -hmm. Would they be the ones responsible? And it's hard to sometimes order plant-based foods at certain restaurants or restaurants. Right. Yeah, so it's an enormous company. Um, we're in about we're in over 400 hotel properties. So it's a lot of them are overseas. They're not all in the U.S. A lot of the properties that we serve because we actually operate that particular training program in um, Mandarin, Arabic, and Spanish language as well as in English. So um, a lot of the students are operating that whole other side of the business in those other languages. Um, so that's the other part of what I do for Ruby. Um, so, you know, for them, their experience is more like they're getting this training program kind of through their employer. Um, it's a certification for them. Um, they want additional plant-based information because it's going to help them become better at what they're doing. But it doesn't mean that if they're at a hotel doing the course and they see they go through the plant base that they're going to then have control over a menu item or something like that. I wish that would be great. Fabulous. <laughs> but hopefully, I mean, some of the higher end properties in particular, um, their goal is to actually roll out special menus with all those items on there. That's you know, the, yeah. Forward to. <laughs> yeah, absolutely. Well, they see it as the future for lots of reasons and I kind of have to hand it to Marriott for being, very forward thinking, knowing that it's not just good for their clientele in terms of meeting the needs of different um, different types of guests and things, but also just from a food safety, food cost, kind of footprint in the kitchen, operational kind of point of view, it is so much better business to sell lentils for $16 than to sell chicken for 20 Like, it's just crazy. Yeah, absolutely. <laughs> it, it boggles the mind actually. Yeah. So, so I have a question. So you as a chef and you, you know, you work for an online cooking school and you do all this. And so you've had thousands of, I'm assuming thousands of people come through. What is the one thing or a couple of mistakes that you see people making that maybe make it more difficult to cook this way or their fears or what, it, what about something like that? Yeah, I think, you know, one of the obstacles I see for people plant-based um, is just um, some timidness in building flavor. I think it's one of those things when I'm trying to teach people to cook, it's so about them getting in it and tasting it and saying, wow, that tastes good, but I want it 
spicier, or I want it more this, or more acidic, or I want it, like, food has to speak to you, and I'm always so uh, aware that people need to be pushed on experiencing food from a flavor point of view so they can understand how to build flavor and make the food flavorful. And that's how you're going to want to eat it. If the food's right. kind of subpar and kind of like, eh, what's going to make you want to take that next bite and get that in your body? <laughs> so how do you teach people how to build flavor? Because I've heard this from other chefs. And so can you describe? I mean, you, yeah, you sure. You different levels of flavor. And for me, it's a good or not <laughs> yeah yeah so i mean so we're with ruby we're a cooking school so so much of how we teach or why we teach is to get people to understand you know the underlying principles behind what's happening in a dish when it tells you to saute it or roast it or steam it or marinate it all these sort of um terms and methods that we see when we're reading recipes but we don't necessarily always perform or execute properly. So we're really focused on getting people to understand what it means to do that technique, to execute that method of cooking properly and in the context properly. Like what you're going for from a, a competency point of view versus, oh, well, it's set to cook it on medium for five minutes. And I did that. Like that may or may not actually do the thing that you needed it to do. Right. So it's just totally arbitrary. So it's about getting people to actually understand what it is you're looking for in the process to take the next step or to not take the next step because it would benefit if you are patient or benefit if you turn the heat up or if you turn it down or if you waited 90 seconds or if you tasted it before you added more X <laughs> because that's how you make it something where you go, wow, holy moly, I didn't know it could be that good versus I followed the recipe and you know what? Eh, whatever. <laughs> and then and then you're just being a passive bystander in your life and that's like horrible. <laughs> well, and I think you give them the tools to investigate where a dish went wrong too. Right. So, so have you yeah. guys considered going into like, you know, home economics classes and, you know, high school education courses with this type of thing? Oh. We, you know, we actually do, just like we have our, our industry training program, we actually have a whole high school program that we've been running for a few years. Uh, again, that has a small plant-based component, but kind of a job readiness focus. Um, it's a program we run through uh, a program called CCAP, which is okay. um, it's about 6,000 high school students in seven states that use it. Um, and, you know, we work with high schools in a way where this is their online accompaniment for their on-ground CCAP culinary program, which, depending on the high school, looks very different. <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. So, I mean, we're it's very, we, we love, we love the high school population. I absolutely think it's, it's uh, underserved still. Right. And I, well, education in general, <clears throat> I think we miss, we uh, underestimate what can be done with them for sure yeah absolutely i had absolutely. a gentleman that i just finished a podcast with his name's steve fortino and oh, yeah. he's a special education teacher who took i mean this is an amazing story he took you know severely disabled kids in his very limited um, budget of six dollars per week fed them four meals 
during the week and found through economic restraints and many other things that, you know, vegetables and fruit were the way to go. And they lost hundreds and hundreds of pounds, improving scores, behavior change. I mean, it blows my mind. I'm like, and so did they continue the policy? Like, no, it kind of died out. I'm like, what is this about? So I was like, right. this is lunacy. This cracks me up that you can't do that. Uh, so anyway, so that one of my goals is to help him find someone that can help get this going again because, I mean, that's a man who has wealth of information. And he did it for 11 years. Wow. It's amazing. Such a nice man. Okay. Yeah, amazing. I, I tell you. So, you know, what are your favorite, for example, if you had, you know, like your elevator pitch to say, hey, you should try this plant-based diet, what would be like <laughs> your recipe or something like that you would maybe hook someone with? You know, what's a good, simple thing that you tell people? Um. Yeah, I always like to talk to people about like the foods they like to eat before I make a suggestion. So it, people have so many different comfort foods. Um, I'm a person that when I don't really know, I push some just awesome like lentil dish or something that's going to be really comforting and really feel filling and warm. And it's something that they can dress up in any number of ways. So, um, you know, make it a cool, like, red lentil thing, and then if they have the ability to do cool additional rough chopped vegetables or condiments or different things on top would be really fun. I also like giving people really awesome, like, veggie-based burgers. I know people sometimes are turned off by that, but I love a really good, like, black bean, like a handmade, homemade black bean burger where people go, okay, that's... That's comforting. You know, you pick it up. There's a certain, um, like, familiarity to it for people. Um, I think that never gets old. It's done well. <laughs> yeah, no. I, veggie burgers were a mainstay when we first transitioned our household, let me tell you. Yeah, yeah, yeah. What's your favorite black be or black bean veggie burger recipe, then? Um, you know, I do different kinds. I actually like this one that I've been working on, which is black beans mash. I also put some black bean flour in it. Bob's Red Mill has... Um, ground up black beans, just like you buy chickpea flour. This is like black bean flour. Hmm. So I added like uh, a few tablespoons of that to my mix, and it had cubed, uh, little diced uh, cubes, uh, sweet potato, green onion, black bean, kind of cumin. But the black bean flour to me was just like an awesome um, additional binder. It was sweet. It was really nice. Better it's kind of like ground flaxseed or something like that? Uh, just a different texture. The flax um, would just give it a different texture. To me, there was just like a intensity of the black beaniness from it. It was kind of cool. Oh, I'm so going to have to hunt that down. Now. Yeah, yeah, yeah. <laughs> I, did let it, I did let it sit to let the black bean flour swell for a while, so I didn't go straight to from patty to baking. I let it sit for about an hour just to let it kind of hydrate out, yeah. And when you're doing your sweet potato, is it roasted or mashed or what? Yeah, I always when I make when I make veggie burgers and patties and things, I always I almost always I should say try to roast the vegetable first because I like to draw moisture out and concentrate flavor. Um, you know, too much moisture in a veggie patty is what could kill it, is what kind of makes it fall apart or not bind well or have irregular binding and cause cracking and all that kind of stuff. So, pulling moisture out of the roasted product is kind of what I like to do first. So small dice, hot roast, even get some coloration, which adds flavor. 
um, yeah. is super good. Um, I've also been doing a technique, which is kind of fun, where I just grate carrots and sweet potato onto a parchment paper, onto a sheet pan, and roast that super hot and just kind of dehydrate it super fast with, like, a convection oven okay. and create some browning on top. But I just kind of stir it a few times, and it's kind of crazy how much moisture you can get off of that, <laughs> that massive vegetables. And then I, I add that, and it just again, concentrates it down. It adds more depth of flavor. It's one of those things where talk about building flavor. Like that's a great way right there to build more flavor. Like take that water out and concentrate your volume with more things that have flavor. <laughs> so how do you, when you, I guess, you know, the roasting times vary according to the size of however you cut. Do you, do you have right. general guidelines that for people who maybe want to try that? Yeah, so, you know, when I do, like, a small dice, and I'm talking like a, and again, I'm not, like, asking for perfect knife cuts. <laughs> we do in our professional course. We ask for good knife cuts. But, you know, when you're just at home cooking and trying to get it out and you want to kind of get your veggie patty done, you know, one-eighth inch cubes, more or less, is pretty good starting point for a nice small dice, between an eighth and a quarter inch. And then if you're roasting really hot, um, 425 degree oven. If you have convection, use that. A fan in your oven, that's spectacular for even heating. Um, you know, if you have a convection at 425 with nice small dice, you're talking about 12 minutes, maybe 15 minutes, pretty fast. If it's a larger dice, then maybe 20 minutes. Um, I like to really roast at a higher temperature to encourage that coloration. Okay. You know, okay. nice crisping and browning. And if I find I'm going too fast, it's easier to kind of pull them out, let the oven cool off a little bit, and then finish them than it is to kind of like, okay, crank it up and wait and do that whole bit. I'd rather, rather get color on them earlier. Um, again, okay. build, building flavor, um, adding texture, and increasing that capacity for it to kind of wick, wick away moisture. Wow. And you do that yeah. with all vegetables across the board, same size. There's not any, like, you know, starchy, more vegetable, different... You know, if I'm doing like a veggie patty, part of what I'm after is consistency and the the look and feel of the of the patty itself. So I'm going to keep them all pretty small, pretty consistent. If I'm putting you know a number of different things in there, um, but I roast vegetables of all different sizes. Like when I roast beets and things, sometimes I'll just cut them in half, roast them whole, huge chunks, and that way you can treat it as a roasted vegetable, more like a a big piece that you then have to cut up yourself. It becomes satisfying, you know, fork and knife style. So. Yeah. So with those type of larger ones, so when people cover the, like, roasting pan with aluminum foil, what is that process? What are they doing? I see that a lot. Yeah, so um, you, I don't generally, when I roast, typically what I like to do is just have, you know, vegetables on a parchment paper on a hot sheet pan, no covering if you cover, then you're diminishing the ability for the roasting to happen. You're more steaming. Okay. With things like beets, where you want to peel the skin off of a whole beet, you see the technique where they surround it in foil, they cover it in a pan with foil. Because when you're trying to get the skin off, you do benefit from that, that moist context. Mm. Um, so that's just kind of one of those like like you know like uh, nuances I guess right. <laughs> one of those things. But most you know 99% of the time when I talk about roasting, it's like get those vegetables chopped pretty consistently onto a sheet pan, whether they're big cuts or small cuts, and just no co no covering because the cover is going to 
uh, inhibit the ability for it to brown and crisp and get moisture away from it. So when you apply seasoning, do you put seasoning before it's roasted, after it's roasted, during? Uh, it depends what I'm doing. If I'm doing like a, a no oil roasting, I'll typically add like a flavorful broth, like a reduced broth, maybe some um, you know highly flavorful liquid. Sometimes it's some juice with broth. Again, just a tiny bit to kind of coat those vegetables. And I'll um, add some seasoning then, probably a very small amount, and use that initial coating to kind of, again, sometimes encourage the coloration. Too much liquid obviously is not good because you're not trying to get steam. You're trying to get a roasting action, a dry a dry cooking action. And then, you know, for no oil, I find the most results with seasoning after the fact, pulling out those you know, nice browned cooked pieces and then tossing them again in something that's highly flavorful, fresh herbs, um, fresh ground toasted spices, whatever it is. If I'm using oil, the herbs kind of and spices kind of um, adhere differently. So typically just I'll, I'll be a little bit um, less careful about adding more or less up front because of how it kind of sticks to them and doesn't have the same tendency to kind of sit on the sheet pan and burn. So um, either way you do it, it's really important to kind of have the awareness that it's better to do the seasoning on the back end, the post-flavor development, than to try it at the front end and wind up having it burning or creating too much liquid, which can just cause steaming and not roasting. <laughs> and kind of sabotaging yourself before you even have a chance. So I say, when in doubt, like leave it pl more plain, and then post season after. Um, Perfect. That yeah. will be worth everyone listening to this podcast. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> Let me tell you. Um, so now I know you have children. Yep. And did you guys raise them this uh, eating this way? I'm assuming. Um, you know, not a hundred percent. Okay. We talk about it. We do it when they can, when they want to, they're aware of it. You know, when Gabe wears his forks over knives shirt to school, he gets questions about it. <laughs> you have a Gabe? Yep, yep. Gabe. Yep. Okay. <laughs> <laughs> um, but, you know, it's just, again, it's different. It's part of their journey. They're on the path in a different way. They, they have a real deep appreciation for it, and they like to eat and cook that way, but they're not – they don't feel bound by it or say that they're bound by it at any, by any stretch. And your, and your wife, how about her? Oh, not, not either. Not oh, either. Okay. Yep. Oh, wow. Completely oh, wow. flexible. Yep. Okay. Um, that's, that's good. Well, I went home and said the family at home were eating this way. <laughs> <laughs> My poor family, God bless them. My husband, but he lost 65 pounds. I mean, wow. it, it was Amazing. pretty incredible. And, um, he's, he's full on now. And two of the three kids, I'm working on the last one. And she's going to medical school next year. It's killing me. Wow. <laughs> she's going to hate me talking to her about her. <laughs> uh, oh, well. She can go, yeah, tell her psychiatrist whatever. No, I'm just kidding. <laughs> um, so I did have a question, too. So I see that you were involved with the James Beard Foundation. What's that? Yeah, so uh, the Beard Foundation is kind of like the big um, Chefs Association in the United States. They kind of give the big award for cookbook and for best chef in this in a city or in a region. Um, 
And then they also have awards for media and broadcast, which is like TV and documentary and websites and things. So I've been involved with them um, on their media committee for a number of years. And just it's just one of the ways I like to give back to the organization and to the industry and to the larger food community is just being involved. So we're, you know, I'm part of a group that gets to select judges and we set policy for that part of the foundation for their um, awards. So it's a great way for me to keep current the industry, <laughs> kind of see what's happening in this space. Um, and for me to also learn things about a space that I'm involved with kind of just on the side. I'm not really like a food media person. I'm not producing documentaries or film. You know, being in the e-learning space, we touch a lot of these things, but um, so much of what I get to touch in this world is like another universe. It's, you know, um, TV production and film production, and we actually do the podcast categories as well, oh, wow. podcast and radio categories for the Beard Foundation. So um, it's been really interesting. It's definitely a whole... Um, other side of the business. It's like a whole space in itself. Um, but really great to be still kind of in touch with that chef side of things. So Yeah. I mean, it's so interesting for me to just talk to people because I've learned so much. And I, you're only my 10th interview, so I'm just still <laughs> overwhelmed with how much we don't know. And the podcasts have been such a wonderful tool for us to learn. Um, so I'm I'm curious then, what is your favorite food documentary since you mentioned that? Oh, gosh. Um, food documentary. There's just so many good food movies out there. I, I don't know that I have a favorite food documentary. There's just, um, I think there's just a whole genre of kind of food cinema, food film. <laughs> and, and it spans, I think, pretty, pretty great, you know, pretty, pretty wide. Well, which one would you recommend someone who's just entering this space besides Forks Over Knives? That is the default answer. Yeah. Um, see, that's, yeah, I would say the Forks Over Knives is such a powerful one for so many people. Um, gosh, you know, I think that even just watching movies like Food, Inc., I mean, I think just even some of the big, like, mainstream movies still carry a pretty powerful message for people. Um you know, I always think about, like, so many, you know, like, conversations that used to happen in the space around, like, global warming and stuff as being, like, food movies, but people weren't necessarily connecting those dots the same way I was, maybe. Um, but there's, uh, yeah, there's so many great food movies, food documentaries um, out there, for sure. Yeah, have you seen Eating You Alive yet? I have seen Eating You Alive, yeah. That is, is an, such a joy. I got to meet... Marilee and Paul David, the producer, uh -huh. okay, cool. and interviewed them. I think they were my second or third. No, I think they were my second oh, very podcast. Cool. So, so delightful. And we got to meet them in person in Denver at their screening. And I, I encourage everyone, as soon as that one's more available, to actually watch that as well. Because I think it takes it, you know, it's a little bit more rapid succession of things that they do in their interviews. But to show the connection of, yes, this makes a big difference medically, but also you can do it. And so I, I kind of like that. It's it's a different uh, way of approaching it than forks over knives, but yeah. I really do like that. Yeah, absolutely. So as far as, I know you must travel quite a bit. 
or no? Uh, yeah, it's, uh, yeah, on and off, absolutely. So what would be your travel tips for someone who's trying to eat in a healthy plant? <laughs> um, it's just, it's all about planning. Um, I'm really spoiled because I live in Portland and our airport has actually really good plant-based options that I can pick up and pretty much be set anywhere I'm going. So it's never much of an issue, but otherwise it's just planning and, um, you know, having fresh fruit, having some things on hand, just being, being okay. I think being hungry for maybe a few hours. <laughs> My kids hate to hear that, but I'm always like, if you guys don't want to eat that, you just have to be hungry for another hour. <laughs> I mean, the honest truth is just it comes down to planning and being able to, um, you know, suck it up and spend $2 on a banana or some piece of fruit or something someplace. And just such you have to do sometimes, you know. <laughs> you know and it's funny because I always like to travel with like nuts and raisins and like a little trail mix that I'd make. And I was flying back home to Colorado to my family, to my husband, and everybody come out here. So it's a four hour flight. And so during that time, I would get probably a little hungry. So as soon as we board, they're like, oh, we're sorry to announce that there's a uh, traveler who has informed us that they have nut allergies. Please do not consume any <laughs> product. Oh, my like, gosh. Are you kidding me? <laughs> are you joking? Wow. Like, so maybe something other than nuts. <laughs> maybe. That's, that's maybe. a go-to advice that a lot of people give. So, oh, take some almonds or put something in your purse. Yeah, just... I always have that in my bag, I feel like, for sure. Yeah, so I'm, I'm separating now the raisins and... Maybe the nuts in the other another bag. Oh, the dried fruit versus the nuts versus the seeds. Yeah. Mm -hmm. So yeah. there are so many more food allergies. Um, it's been such on the rise, you know, in the last probably decade or so. And um, yeah, that's something certainly to be concerned about. For sure. Yeah, absolutely. So one one last question. I know you've taken a lot of your time already. Bless your heart. Um, what would the holidays are coming? Is there any advice that you would give around holiday meals and? maybe how they can maybe make things a little healthier than your traditional foods? Yeah, I I always go back to just um, helping people recreate, like, a few awesome food experiences. It's, again, going back to the story that they're going to tell. And for so many families, it's not about the complete makeover. It's about getting a few items on the table that are going to just sort of fit the bill and get people through, those people who kind of – want to attend and be a part of it without having a civil war. <laughs> um, <laughs> so it's so easy for people to turn certain foods plant-based by just not putting the bacon on it or by adding the heavy cream at the end or whatever it is. So I think just having those conversations, if you can, with family members, bringing your own version of it that just doesn't have that thing, but it's otherwise identifiable and comforting for people. Um, you know, so many of those comforting foods don't have to be laden. It doesn't need to be butter. It doesn't need to be this or that. It can be some other plant-based um, alternative, and no one even has to know in some cases, frankly. So, um, but, like, what I always do, like, I always love to just show people just a giant platter of cashew, cream, greens, and just some, you know, awesome vegetable dishes, side dishes, and when they're surrounded by like three or four awesome looking things, they're like no one's gonna say where's the food, you know. I think that's that's part of it is just give them a bunch of great options and <laughs> they're gonna eat it and be really happy and um, yeah, I think that's really true. We were really blessed um, over Thanksgiving. My daughter's boyfriend's family invited us for Thanksgiving, and they are not vegan. 
and our plant based and they were really kind and they went out of their way to create an entire menagerie of things for us to choose from and it was all delicious stuffed acorn squash and yeah. beautiful sweet potato and they were like oh this is really good you know so they actually <laughs> created the dishes themselves out of kindness and ended up enjoying them so much like wow I have to think about this. <laughs> it doesn't surprise me one bit. It was probably the most interesting, vibrant thing on the plate. Right? <laughs> Our plates were so colorful. It was really funny because um, there were, they were like, wow, that looks like it just stepped out of a magazine. I was like, you know, you should try some. <laughs> <laughs> if you eat it, you might actually really enjoy it. Exactly. So that was really fun to see that happen um, for sure. But I do can want to say thank you again for all your time you spent with me. I certainly appreciate that. My pleasure. Thank you for having me. Absolutely. And I always at the end would like to acknowledge you and say thank you to those who maybe don't even know who to thank when they've been doing your online cooking course and all this wonderful information you're putting out there for us easy to, you know, it's easier for us to access, access excuse me, and using the culinary, culinary prescription, right? Is that, it's culinaryrx.com? Culinaryrx, yep, culinary-rx.com. Yep. And that's great for doctors to send your patients to. And so, uh, again, I really appreciate that. Thank you. You're welcome.